Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is New Books and Law. Thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Today we are being uh, we are discussing a new book in constitutional law and theory regarding Donald Trump and how he has conducted his presidency. It's called Defender in Chief: Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, and we're joined today by the author John Yu. Professor Yu is a a professor at University of California, Berkeley, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law. He's also a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Previously, he served as an official in the U.S. Justice Department during the George W. Bush administration as general counsel of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and as a law clerk to United States Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, John Yu, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Oh, Ian, thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. So this is a book that you sounded like you were reluctant uh, to write, or at least surprised you were writing, uh, based on the introduction, because you did not start out as a Donald Trump fan. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Four years ago, I was not a supporter of uh, Donald Trump. I was quite skeptical, wary of him, I think is... Uh, many uh, people, I think, back then who are, I guess you could say, or originalists on the Constitution or involved in uh, Republican politics were. Uh, and particularly what worried me is that he was campaigning as a populist and populists uh, always sort of run into the Constitution. I think of populists as people who go out to the country uh claim a mandate to overthrow the existing order or the status quo or the way of doing things. And uh, usually it's a constitution that uh, establishes the old way of doing things that slow things down and I think are very frustrating to populists. And you consider yourself an originalist who is much, much interested in whether or not power today is exercised in accord with the way the Constitution was originally intended to operate, right? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's fair to call me a, a, an originalist. I've been uh, doing that kind of uh, research in my scholarly work back since the uh, early '90s, I guess. And I'm I'm also interested in other things, but in terms of interpreting the Constitution, that's that's been my primary methodology. Yes. So, of course, Donald Trump is um, one of the things for which he is famous, and the way he campaigned in 2016 was by releasing his intended nominees uh, or prospective nominees for the federal judiciary, especially the Supreme Court. And many of them are considered to be originalists. And that has certainly endeared uh, many people that I know who are originalists to, to support him, although they might not support him for other reasons. So beyond his judicial selections, however, uh, what other reasons might originalists uh, be enthusiastic about Trump in 2020? 
That's interesting. I think there's a lot of the same reasons in uh, 2016. And I, I have to say, I, I um, thought that a lot of Trump's policy proposals back four years ago and again today are ones I generally favor and uh, Republicans generally favor. I mean, it's almost uh, very Reagan-esque, uh, you know, cutting taxes, uh, reducing the size of the federal government, limiting federal power, uh, deregulation, uh, you know, relying more on the states. Uh, you know, it's uh, if you look at the platform from four years ago, there's I don't think there's a platform now, but the platform I think they just kind of pasted the platform from four years ago. Uh, it wasn't that different than a lot of the traditional Republican party. You know, the people say the Republican party's you know built on uh, three stools often. You know, sort of. Uh, or was, you know, so anti-communism or vigorous foreign defense, uh, which I happen to agree with, and then free market economics, which I also happen to agree with, and then this more limited role for the federal government and uh, reliance more on the states, and uh, which I also happen to agree with. So that you know wasn't his domestic policies that really worried me back then, uh, and in fact I would say, uh, despite all the political controversy and sometimes chaotic politics, Trump has certainly been divisive uh, politically. And he certainly, I think, has disrupted the normal way of running politics. I think in terms of uh, limits on the federal government and uh, deregulation, cutting taxes, I mean, he seems to have kept his promises. And particularly, as you said, he really did on appointing originalist justice judges and justices to the court. So in terms, though, of proposing a renewal of his contract on the White House for another four years. Does his performance in office over the last three and a half years, uh, it, based on the book, of course, this is a loaded question, uh, it, it makes you feel better about him uh, being reelected? Oh, yes. I mean, compared to four years ago. And uh, in part, it's, <laughs> I mean, in part, it's maybe not... It's about who he isn't, <laughs> because uh, one of the reasons I explain in the book why over the last four years I came to a more favorable view of Trump is how far his opponents are willing to go in overturning constitutional traditions and systems and norms in order to bring him down. And so that's one of these really worries me. Uh, even though Trump is the one who's <coughs> excuse me, excuse, accused often of wanting to uh, break constitutional principles. It's actually, you go through the platforms or what people say these days, it's you know Trump's opponents who are the ones who are in favor of getting rid of the Electoral College. Um, I think you've written about this too. They want to use this national popular vote initiative to try to evade uh, the founders. I think pretty elaborate and carefully balanced idea about how to pick the president. Uh, you know, the Amy Coney Barrett, nomination that we're in the midst of right now is another good example. Um, Trump's opponents are threatening to pack the court to add six new justices, uh, which expand the court by two thirds of his membership because they are upset that President Trump is nominating and the Senate might confirm uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the vacancy created by the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is you know, certainly within their constitutional powers, you can argue about whether politically it's a great idea or not. But presidents have certainly done this in the past. You know, people say that the Republicans in the Senate are being hypocrites, but um, they haven't broken 
any serious constitutional norms that's even close to, uh, I think, undermining the political independence, I'm sorry, the independence of the court system. You know, it's not Trump as his opponents who say things like uh, sending federal law enforcement uh, to quell disorder in some of our cities, as we're seeing in Portland or Chicago, uh, is tantamount to fascism and sending occupying Trump armies into our cities. I, I wish those were the fevered bloggings of left-wing activists, but those are uh, words that have appeared on the New York Times editorial page. And you know, indip- uh, I think Trump's opponents also would work a serious harm to the separation of powers because they want to create more independent, per- permanent special counsels to investigate the government. And they want to uh, you know, I think override the limits on the federal government by nationalizing energy, transportation, housing through this Green New Deal. So I, I, I kind of think in the book, I argue that this has turned Trump into this unintentional, maybe most surprising defender of the Constitution just by defending the existing order against, uh, a, I think, a, a sort of radical wing of the Democratic Party that really wants to undo the way we have run ourselves for a long time. That's right. I think there's um, my, my interpretation as I read the book was that there's this implicit irony in the fact that Trump has and relishes himself this reputation of being a bull in a China shop and overturning norms. But ironically, your argument is that he, in fact, upholds a tradition of an independent and strong executive, whereas some of his predecessors uh, who are who give the appearance of being much more adherent to norms, in fact, uh, willingly uh, violate these norms. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's been uh, remarkable. You wouldn't. Have, that's what I. Not, I would not have predicted that four years ago. I bet a lot of people would not have predicted that four years ago. But I think Trump, and I think it's because Trump has been so disruptive to the political system that his opponents are willing to entertain. I think truly radical. For example, take court packing. And this is something that. Uh, the America uh, first constitutionally, Congress does have the power to set the number of justices on the Supreme Court and the size and shape of the lower courts as well. But this is an idea packing the courts to achieve a political outcome. <laughs> Sounds like you've got some angry Democrats there in the house. <laughs> but they don't like my book. <laughs> no. I, don't, I don't blame them. <laughs> well, the hazards of doing things from your home office. So, but but just on this corporate. No, no, that's no problem. I love, I love, I love dogs. You know, like as Harry Truman once said, right, if you want to have a friend in Washington, get yourself a dog. <laughs> so, no, the, but the point court backing is, uh, even though constitutionally it's possible for Congress to do this, we have long had this norm, I think, since the first Jefferson administration, basically, to not use that power to try to manipulate the courts and the justices to get the results we want. And we've had nine justices now. I mean, the numbers fluctuated, not a lot. We've never had serious court packing, but, you know, fluctuated. And we've had nine since around, uh, during Reconstruction, I think since around, since 1869. So for about 100 and almost 150 years. And uh, even FDR, who might have, you know, in 1937, who might have won one of the great reelections of all time, where he won an enormous electoral college victory. His party controlled two-thirds of the House and the Senate. I mean, they could have passed constitutional amendments if they felt like it. Uh, even FDR tried this. In fact, he had the same proposal. He didn't like the way the Supreme Court was voting on the New Deal. 
And he proposed adding six new justices to the Supreme Court, and even his own party turned against him. And many historians say uh, FDR had gone too far and effectively received such a political blow that that kind of ended the New Deal right there. Well, this is a, an aspect of your book. You don't uh, really address at length the uh, court packing plan. Of course, it, this is something that's come to the fore since the book's been published. But uh, I am interested in your thoughts on uh, the political culture now. Uh, in 1937, after FDR is reelected in 36, he introduces this court packing plan. And really, he could have probably achieved it in terms of raw numbers in the Congress, but the people who are among the resistors are fellow Democrats who are New Dealers. It seems to me that the political culture and the, if you will, and I know this is an overused uh, metaphor, but the tribalism, uh, tribal-like divide between left and right today, I'm not so sure there would be too many, uh, no matter which party it was, who would necessarily resist the executive in their own party who wanted to perhaps change the court. Do you think the culture's changed in that yeah. sense? I mean, you're the political scientist, not me, so I don't really you know, have a great sense of how the parties work, but I could say back in the, you're right, in the 1930s, there was a different political culture and uh, the parties were uh, more ideologically diverse, I guess. So the Democratic Party back then was made up of Western and Northeastern liberals, but Southern Democrats were more conservative and the Republican Party had conservatives and liberals too. And so I actually blame you political scientists for the shape we're in because political okay. scientists, I don't know if you remember this, when I went to school and was doing this kind of reading and I tried to keep a little bit, but the, remember the, uh, the, politics of the 50s and 60s was seen as too moderate. You know, they didn't like these ideas. The political scientists hated these uh, moderate parties, which sucked in all the new movements and prevented, uh, you know, and, and were ideologically diverse internally. So people didn't like that in political science because the parties didn't present clear ideological choices like the parties do in Europe, for example. You know, well, now we got their wish. <laughs> right now we have two right. political parties and one's definitely conservative, one's definitely liberal. And we have clear choices now in our elections about Republican versus Democrat. And so, and so one result of that, I think, Ian, is I agree with you at the bottom line is now if a party takes power like the Democratic Party and they want to uh, pack the court, there's going to be less of an internal fight as there was in 1937 in the Democratic Party where the, you know different parts of the party will restrain the leadership let me add, this is also, you know, this is not going to end in uh, 2021 if the Democrats do this. Republicans will almost certainly counter and do the same thing. In fact, I, I think court packing, if I was to look at the last 30, 40 years, court packing has probably more been more popular amongst conservatives who've wanted to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, I always thought, and one reason, and you're right, it's not that extensively discussed in the book, because when I read this book, I thought it was a fringe idea. I mean, I, it always has been a fringe idea, but it's not a fringe idea uh, anymore. And so ironically, I think the one reason I, I, I have had a more favorable view of Trump is that, again, unintentionally uh, or and surprisingly, he's defending the idea of an independent judiciary with nine justices and not meddling with the size of the courts against people who I think if they we start down this path, uh, courts might just become like agencies where you just change, you just add more people uh, during your term in office and they just follow the policies you want while you happen to have power, which I think would be terrible for our country. 
So let's turn to uh, more of the substance of the arguments that you make in the book. Uh, by the title, it would seem like this is going to be a book primarily about Trump, but really it's equal parts constitutional history, especially the history of the original understanding and intentions or the, uh, the debates about what the executive was going to be like ever since the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. And so you outline, you categorize the different areas of executive power. And we can talk about any of these that you think are most germane. I was especially interested in the war uh, making, war initiating, uh, war declaration uh, powers and the division between the executive and Congress and the notions of what does it mean to be able to declare war and so forth. Uh, so I'm particularly yeah, interested in that. But we, can, that. we can talk about any aspect of no, this. So, no, that's my favorite subject. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but, that's right. You have written a history of uh, presidential power from Washington yeah. uh, to the well, current so, day. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, first, you, you have uh, found me out. Because, yes, the book appears to be about Trump, but really it was a trick. It was a trick to try to get people who would just buy a book about Trump to learn something about the presidency, too. <laughs> uh, and so you're right. It's, got, it's probably more a book about presidential history and the original understanding of executive power than it is about uh, Trump. I mean, it's not heavily into, although there is, I think, quite a bit about the uh, scandals and the investigations and impeachment, because they all involve the Constitution, too. But uh, yeah, let me talk about the war power uh, briefly, because this is um, probably the thing I've worked on longest. I mean, it's the first uh, major uh, scholarly article I wrote was about the war power back in the 90s. And the reason it attracted me, and I think it's still interesting, is, uh, you know, as a scholar, it's always... You, I think you're, I, I don't know, maybe if you're a contrarian scholar, you're always um, drawn to issues where uh, scholars say one thing almost unanimously, and then the world does something different. <laughs> so, And, you know, usually the world, I think, turns out to be right. So then you want to figure out why are we, the scholars, so wrong? And I got to think, that, you know, there's one issue where that was true uh, for a long time. It was the war power. So you have presidents who have for a long time uh, used force abroad without any congressional authorization, certainly no declaration of war. We've only had five declarations of war. The last one was World War II. We have had many, many wars during those years and since, uh, you know, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. Now, some of those have had what we call an authorization to use force from Congress, um, like Afghanistan and Iraq, which I also happened to have worked on when I was at the Justice Department. But many important wars haven't, like uh, Korea, for example, had no declaration of war or you know, any explicit statutory authorization. On the other hand, scholars almost unanimously uh, said that's all unconstitutional because the Constitution in Article I gives Congress the power to declare war. So to me, this this you know, this you know, this extreme conflict between practice and scholarly opinion, it just seems something was wrong there. So I started to work on uh, back then. I still work on now this question of well, what's the proper allocation of the war power under the Constitution, given that presidents have uh, seemed to have violated the Constitution dozens and dozens, if not a hundred times in our history. Then, according to these scholars, some of these scholars. 
So one thing I thought, I, the first, I think I was the one who first found this, I like to think, is I think there's always a value. Uh, and I look, I was just um, 26 years old when I did this. You know, I'm not that long out of college or law school. And I said, oh, maybe I'll just read the Constitution straight through and look at every place it talks about war. And I just came across this provision, which I thought almost settled the question to me. So uh, in Article 1, Section 8, of course, it says Congress shall have the power to declare war grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. And so people say, oh, that phrase to declare war, that means start war. Uh, You know, notice it doesn't have an exception for self-defense or anticipatory self-defense, you know, cases where a country attacks us first or seems to attack us first. So scholars also say, and there's an explicit, I'm sorry, there's a hidden exception in there for when someone attacks us. But if you just turn the page of your trusty constitution to two sections later, there's something, Article 1, Section 10. And it says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. So the thing when I was just like, I'm a young guy, I say, that provision is exactly what people think the Declare War Clause does. You could have just said, no president shall without the consent of Congress. And it even has the exceptions everyone concedes have to be in the Declare War Clause. So I'm like, I, the thing that occurs to me is, why would the framers have written out such a careful provision with all the things we want in it and then not use it for the president and we use it, but we use it for the states? That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and so that led me to this view that actually the way Congress checks presidents is not through declarations of war or author- authorizations. The way it does it is the way it worked under the parliament and the king, which is Congress controls the funding. Congress controls the size and shape of the military. That was a perfect check through till World War II because we didn't have a large military. So presidents would say, OK, I'm going to have a war in Mexico right, in 1846. And they have to go to Congress and say, please build me the army to go to war with Mexico. Congress has to give its approval or not. They have to vote. And so I think I think the, the you know, reading the constitutional text and the structure this way made better sense of practice that the that we just had not silently amended the Constitution in this huge area. Maybe the most important thing the government does is a wage war, as many scholars thought. Sorry for getting going on so long, but I think I just find that so interesting, those textual provisions in the Constitution available to anybody sitting there for 230 years to see. And so essentially you are arguing that our conception of the executive should be better informed by the subjective, uh, sometimes made formally these statements that, but these subjective perspectives that the framers had, which was the experience that Europe had had under, and England in particular, under the way the crown had operated as an institution vis-a-vis parliament. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, Ian, because there's some divide amongst originalists about this, about how to, what history you should properly use. So my view is, uh, right, all these people who wrote and ratified the Constitution, until just a few years earlier, they had all been British. Uh, they had all been educated as British lawyers. Their background principles were all the British Constitution. In fact, if you look at the phrases of our Constitution, they're all you find them all in on Blackstone, right, which was the 
great statement of British law hanging around at that time. And so these phrases, commander in chief, declare war, commerce, they're all discussed in these uh, British sources. And are, what I think of is the founders, they got to the constitution, right? This is, by the way, constitution version 2.0. Version 1.0, the Articles of Confederation do the same thing, but in a failed way. And they just sort of, the founders just sort of remove, change, you know, they might change, rearrange those provisions in certain ways. But to understand what the phrases mean, I think we have to go back to that British understanding because that was the background against which they were acting. So one way i suppose that you that one if i'm doing my duty as a host i push back on this notion of maybe this isn't you don't restrict this to a linguistic argument of choice of terms but perhaps the the you say we're getting hung up on this uh, word of declaration as assuming that it's essentially equivalent to initiate mm-hmm. and the way of perhaps pushing back on this notion would be that one of the fears, of course, of people from the founding generation, especially that group in society that was educated in terms of classical education, the fears that everyone had regarding things like, and this would be from the English Civil War, but also uh, Roman history, which many of them were knowledgeable about uh, based on their educations of the time, which is the fear of the standing army and uh, the tyrant and what the independent power and ambitions that they assumed everyone held in power, would, wouldn't we have expected that perhaps they would have been a little more express on trying to restrict the power of the executive in the new nation that they were because uh, that they were founding? In other words, they are starting anew in one sense, but at the same time, they see themselves as being informed by the wisdom of the ages and that declaring war sounds like in common parlance perhaps a ability to initiate but what you're arguing is 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 that they really anticipated a much freer hand for the executive and how do we reconcile that with the assumptions that i think many of them had about uh power being concentrated in one person and being abused. And that's a great question. And I think that actually is, uh, uh, it's sort of uh, how I put it. It's a, your question, I, I think, illustrates, again, this sort of divide amongst originalists um, about the use of sources and how to understand the founding. So there are a group of scholars who uh, make that same argument, rely on that same train of thought, which is, uh, the, why should we treat the Constitution? as uh, a moment that would uh, bolster executive power, given that we're talking about a founding generation that had rebelled against King George III and had been concerned about the growth of the crown and executive power in Britain and goes back, as you say, there are uh, classical sources that they're very familiar with, that they praise. Um, There's this... um, as just sort of anti-crown. Uh, it's hard to say it's a political theory, but it's sort of very popular works at the time of the 18th century. It's called sort of the country ideology. I think this is what Bernard Balin discovered, you know, this famous historian at Harvard, and it was sort of transmitted pamphlets and so on. And it, you know, one of the questions he asked, which I had quite taken with is, 
why would these people have rebelled at all? <laughs> they had it so good materially. They had been so they had lived under a period of benign neglect. Uh, you know, people in America and the colonies were freer and probably wealthier on average than anybody ever before. Um, and had so much freedom, and yet they still saw what was happening in this very conspiratorial way. And so they rebelled, they overthrew the British here in America, and, and it's very anti-executive. I, I completely agree with that. But I also think then if you take the story to the next chapter, which is what happens between the revolution and the constitution, uh, and here I'm very much influenced by the work of Gordon Wood, who you know, sort of picks up the story after Balin, and Wood says – that yes, all of that is true, but what happened during this period between 1776 and 1787 is extreme disorder and chaos in the states. That states did, when they were when they became independent from the crown, they did put into place these kinds of constitutions that expressed uh, a fear of the executive. So my original home state, Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania had. Uh, in its 1776 constitution, they they did, they got rid of a single governor. They had a council of 12 rotating people who were chosen by the legislature, and they served for a year, and then they were out. Uh, that's how afraid they were of uh, an executive. And what Wood says is those systems were so disordered, they proved so oppressive to minority rights that they were so uh, inconstant. They were uh, they were just given to whim and unfairness that uh, the people who gathered together in Philadelphia, who the people who then fought for the ratification of the Constitution, like George Washington or Alexander Hamilton or James Madison, they changed their minds about executive power. And they thought what they, what the, one of the defects of the systems in the states was their lack of strong executives. And so you see in the Constitution, uh, this very unlikely, but restoration of executive power to a single executive, the thing you thought they would have feared back in 1776, they come back to because they now see the defects of having a legislature that's all powerful. And so I think the question then uh, for you, that you're raising and that I try to respond to in the book and in other books is um, how far do we read that restoration of the executive? I mean, they don't give the president the same powers of the crown, but they do restore some of the powers. And so I argue one of the powers they do restore is the power to make war. And so um, the real restriction then on executive power in war making is really the power of the purse. And this is where uh, the vesting clause in Article 2, which vests the presidency or the executive with the executive power, your argument is essentially that that executive power really is a war-making and initiating power, and that the check, if you will, on it, the check and balance it, from the Congress, is essentially the idea of defunding the war. Yes, or never, or never building the military in the first place. And so, to me, at the time of the writing of the Constitution and through till 1945, I'd say that was a perfect check. Uh, because the Congress deliberately kept our military small, because as you said, there was throughout this fear of standing armies in our in, in our political culture and in the Constitution that uh, there 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 was no army for a president to really wage war with. Uh, the, every conflict of any significance, the president would have to go to Congress after the declar after he wants to start war, and say, "Please, you know, build me the military." The thing that changes 
is uh, World War II and then the Cold War and the idea that um, the lesson to learn from World War II is that we should not have, after World War I, withdrawn back to the United States, that we should have demobilized, but instead we're going to have a permanent military. And so I argue, and this is more the political end of it, I argue that um, the way things are now are the way Congress likes it. They don't want to vote on wars. They don't like taking responsibility. So, But they also understand that over the long term, there are these threats from abroad that we don't want to reach our shores. So we want to give the president the ability to act quickly and decisively and swiftly. You know, the phrases that Hamilton uses to describe the executive in the Federalist Papers. And so what Congress has done, you know, Congress, I think, is just fully responsible, but they don't want to be responsible. So Congress is the one that created a military that is really designed solely for offensive operations in other people's countries. You know, as we saw, unfortunately, on 9-11, there are very few military forces in the United States at any one time defending the territory of the country. There, we have what's called an expeditionary military. It's designed to fight overseas so that the wars never get here onto our territory. Congress doesn't have to do that. You know, if Congress really is worried about the president being a military adventurer, they could design and build a different kind of military. So in this respect, it's kind of like the administrative state to me. Um, Congress builds this huge thing, dele- you know, understands or even delegates to the president this power to use it. And then Congress doesn't have to take responsibility. And if it doesn't turn out well, they can blame the president for it. And if it turns out well, they could say they were supporting him the whole time. Well, you bring up Congress, and this book really is more about the executive and how it's functioned both historically and today. And Congress, in some ways, is on the periphery by virtue of the subject matter of your book. But I do want to ask you about um, how Congress itself has changed in some ways in tandem or in response to the executive over time, and what you think about that in terms of what it lays at the foot of the executive. Because Obviously, what you're arguing for here and in other works you've written is in some ways a strong executive, the the so-called unitary executive theory that embraces a partly a historical, but also a uh, theoretical understanding of an independent executive that wields power as only one person can uh, with the efficacy and the energy and dispatch that the framers thought that that one person could exercise power. But at the same time, of course, this is a republic and we have representatives that theoretically, as intended by the founders, were supposed to deliberate. But as you note, we don't have as much of a deliberative body anymore. When that happened historically is an interesting discussion point. But what I want to ask you about is uh, we've got this legislature that wants to abjure any real responsibility for governing and decision-making. And so how does that affect the constitutional role of the executive? Because obviously the executive has become over the last century far more powerful than probably in some ways the framers ever could have imagined it would be because of the choices made by the legislature. But what do you think of as some of the problems as you understand the situation today in terms of governance vis-a-vis constitutional intentions for the legislature. Yeah, I, you know, to me, I'm not sure if the founders came, you know, forward to today and they saw our system, they would say, God, the thing that's really 
uh, outside all realm of imagination was the presidency, because I, I, I still think they thought the presidency would be very important for national security, defense and war and emergencies, which is uh, a lot of what we're, we've just discussed. The thing that they would find surprising, I believe, would be the administrative state, which I think really is the example of what you're talking about, what you're asking about, which is this huge change in our constitutional system, uh, mostly the result of Congress, not the president, which has unbalanced our constitutional system and our separation of powers. Uh, how did that happen was all these powers uh, to legislate, to set the rules that govern our society, uh, you know, at the federal level and the areas of federal competence are in Congress, you know, they're in Article 1, Section 8. The, and the, the separation of powers that I write about, and the, the reason I, this is interesting, I kind of, I argue in the book that it doesn't even, the system doesn't even require Trump to, you know, show up to work and look at his to-do list and have, defend the constitution as number one, right? He, the, our separation of powers of system actually functions when, or at least the, the founders thought it would, when each branch just pursues its rational self-interest. And so it expected the president and the Congress to continuously fight with each other using all their constitutional powers and that that conflict would keep the government limited and that it would still preserve an area of uh, you know, private, what we call civil society now for, for all of us and preserve our freedoms. And what happened though, and this is you, know, you describe when it happened is an interesting question. What happened was Congress at some point said, we don't want to make those decisions anymore. Uh, we're not going to get reelected if we keep deciding you know, how clean the air should be or how much fuel consumption our cars should have or um, what should govern in the workplace or not. So Congress uh, you know, I think this is Woodrow Wilson's idea, you know, one of the maybe the greatest political scientists in American history. You know, he went to Europe. He saw how the German bureaucracy worked. He came back entranced. And his view was uh, we shouldn't have politicians make any of these decisions because they're all scientific decisions or they deserve they require technical expertise or professional judgment. So let's create these huge agencies, give them Congress should transfer to them all the power. And then they, rather than the 18th century idea of the Constitution, which I think Trump is, again, unintentionally promoting, which is politicians, we elect them and they are in charge of the government. And they make these decisions. Wilson's idea was, right, we should isolate and insulate these decision makers as much as possible from politics. And then I think uh, this idea becomes just firmly rooted and established. And I think we still live in R Wilson's Republic now because this idea becomes firmly established then during the New Deal in response to the Great Depression and then you know, goes on steroids in the Great Society with the vast expansion of the welfare state. Uh, and that, I think, is really the constitutional uh, anomaly in our system. Congress's fault entirely. It, but, you know, at the same time, it's so big. It's so vast. I'm not really sure whether it enhances the president's powers. Of course, Congress doesn't want the president to exercise full control over all those agencies. So it tries to make some of them independent. Um, on the other hand, also, but everything the agencies are doing all the time, it really seems to be outside the control of one person and the White House's small group of aides to control. And so... Uh, I'm not sure either the president or the Congress really won in this great, this vast transfer of power to these agencies. But that is, I think that's really the thing 
that Congress did led to the end of deliberation in Congress is it constitutionally unbalances our system. Uh, no one has figured out really yet a way to contain it or reverse it. So it seems to me that there's a conundrum for somebody like you, where you argue that on the one hand, Trump has preserved a kind of executive or the version of executive governance that the framers had in mind and that you enjoy that as a as a performance of governance. But at the same time, you've always got this qualifier, which is that it's unintentional, it's unlikely, unexpected, and that's because of the particular individual, Trump himself. And it seems to me that one of the other things that the framers or that generation assumed was a necessity for good governance was also good character and wisdom. Now, Trump, in, in many people's minds, is the antithesis of wisdom. <laughs> and so if... Yeah, what if they've the, called virtue. <laughs> they uh, refer to virtue all the time. Yes. Sure. And, and so in that sense... Do you think it's important that even though um, he is unlikely or unexpectedly preserving certain traditions or at least uh, the expectations that the framers wanted the executive and assumed it would uphold, um, since his character is questioned, does that make you fearful about the wielding of such power by somebody like Trump individually? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, this is obviously something that uh, really troubled the founders. In, in some ways, they didn't uh, face it uh, because they all knew George Washington was going to be the first president. But you can certainly see it in other parts of the Constitution, like the Electoral College. You know, the Electoral College uh, was an explicit rejection of the idea we should have one single national vote by simple majority for a president, right? that we would, you know, the democracy would be filtered through the state legislatures and then through the choice of electors. And the founders actually didn't really expect, as far as I can tell, that the Electoral College would yield a winner all the time or most of the time, that they would have multiple candidates and it would often go to the House. Uh, oh, you know, on the other hand, I don't think the founders were naive. Uh, James Madison says in the Federal's papers, uh, in fact, you know, if men were angels, then you wouldn't need any government. And so he says, basically, we have to design a cons constitution for uh, the men we have before us who are not angels. And so that's a, that's the um, and that's the idea I think behind the way they thought the separation of powers would work is that it didn't require uh, people like a Washington, you know, people of the highest uh, virtue or the greatest learning. It was uh, built for. Uh, regular people to become politicians, and what they thought then, and this is so. I think, uh, and, and I think some people have written about this, not really in law, but more in history and political sciences. Uh, right? This is uh, this is done and written around the same time as Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and it has the same flavor to it. You know, Wealth of Nations, this idea: you, you, me, we just pursue our self-interest when we buy things in the market or we sell our goods and services. We're just trying to get the biggest profit for ourselves or reduce, have the lowest, short, the smallest losses. And then Smith says, but by pursuing our self-interest, the market as a whole uh, creates greater social welfare. You know, with the invisible hand, we're all we don't even know we're doing it. And I, I read the Federalist Papers. 
And the founders' comments about the separation of powers is very much the same. That presidents are going to just pursue their self-interest. They may not even have these higher constitutional values in mind. And Congress and the courts are going to do the same thing. And then Madison says, right, he says, ambition will counteract ambition. You know, that, yes, this pursuit of self-interest will actually lead to conflict, which was good in their minds, uh, that it would make sure the federal government stays within its uh, limits. And that it will only act when there's a lot of agreement. And that agreement must mean that the public really wants something or it's in the public interest. So to me, when I read that from the founding, it seems to me uh, Trump doesn't have to be a saint uh, for the system to work. We've had a lot of presidents who have had difficult characters and uh, not the best of backgrounds. Uh, and yet, nonetheless, the system continues to work. You know, I would point, you know, as an example, you know, Trump often likes to, I mean, I don't think Trump himself, but people watch Trump often compare him to Andrew Jackson, <laughs> who was a general, but also, you know, a very wild guy, uh, you know, and, and, and the criticism of him is very similar to the criticism of Trump. People are like, who is this uncouth, you know, uneducated frontiersman who's, you know, come and take it over Washington. But, you know, in turn, it becomes, I think, one of our great consequential presidents, too. Well, one of the um, descriptions that you give when you're summing up uh, Trump's impact as an executive is that Trump, as you say, may have caused what you call a seismic shift in the nature of government. And that, I assume, is you have in mind partly his populist uh, approach and appeal um, and the unlikely or perhaps unexpected combination of a kind of originalist approach to uh, the executive branch. Do you think that the one of the impacts of the Trump presidency, whether, whether it's a single term or two terms, is going to be a greater respect for the office of the executive and its uh, traditional functioning? Uh, will that be a renewal of executive governance in a way that we find palatable rather than tyrannical? I, that's, it's a great question. I, you know, to me, uh, I, I, it, I say it one way is one thing I say in the book, which I think is uh, what I thought was an interesting lesson. It's not sure. It's not clear to me. And we tend to look at it as past presidents like this. Oh, they did these things, set these precedents, expanded presidential power in these ways. Uh, and then the presidents in the future benefited when they were faced with, you know, the emergencies and problems. And I say, you know, the interesting thing about Trump and executive power, uh, for the most part, not in foreign affairs, but in domestic affairs, he hasn't done that. He's really used the Constitution and the president's and presidential power as a shield. You know, he's been under constant attack for four years, um, questioning his legitimacy, first with the Russia collusion investigation and then impeachment. And so I argue, actually, his use of the presidency isn't setting new precedents sorry, new examples of expanded presidential power for the future. He's really used the constitution to defend himself uh, from people who would like to eject him from office before the election in November. Uh, and so it doesn't have that kind of precedent setting expansion of power effect, I think. Um, now, foreign affairs, that's uh, been different. But again, interestingly, as a policy matter, what he's been doing with claims that you know he can in, you know, start hostilities or claims that he can set the foreign policy of the United States in conflict with Congress. Has it been, again, interestingly, a withdrawal rather than an expansion of what presidents have done in the past? So 
you know, when you, when you and I start out talking about the war power, we traditionally have this idea, oh, the presidents are the ones who have this uh, instinct and desire to start wars. It glorifies them. And Congress is the more peaceful branch. Um, presidents want to go around and make lots of agreements with other countries. And Congress is more uh, you know, modest about what the United States should commit to abroad. That's the opposite under Trump. You know, now Trump is using executive power in war to pull troops out of places like Syria, reduce, reduce troops in Iraq, maybe pull us out of Afghanistan, threatening to pull us out of Germany, Japan, and South Korea, where troops have been, you know, since the end of World War II. And he's also gone around the world, you know, so the president's the, the more peaceful branch right now, and the Congress is the more warlike branch. Trump's also gone around and claiming this power of foreign policy. He's not engaging us in more commitments. He's been breaking treaties left and right, right? He's pulled us out of the Paris Global Warming Accords, and he's pulled us out of the Iran nuclear deal, and he's um, terminated two arms control agreements with the Russians. Uh, you know, again, he's, and he's terminated the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. So it's interesting. He's actually the now the branch that wants to reduce engagement with the world, and it's the Congress that wants to have more Engagement. So both, I see this parallel in both domestic and foreign affairs. It was hard to figure out what the, you know, the organizing theme there was. But I think in both cases, he's actually using uh, executive power in a weird way to actually reduce the reach of the federal government and reduce the reach of the executive as a policy matter. So it's not clear to me that sets any future presidents for, say, a President Biden or maybe four years from now, President Pence to say, oh, I have this new power to handle something that hasn't happened before because Trump hasn't really done that. So in terms of executive power, um, it seems to me that one lesson, some conservatives have drawn this from the Obama presidency, is that one thing that in achieving certain policy goals, the Obama presidency may have learned from its experience with DACA and DAPA is that there are things that the executive can simply attempt to do. They will be challenged in courts, but in the meantime, that executive policy will be realized in some fashion. But, and, and that was certainly the case with uh, DACA and uh, your book has been, uh, was in press, I assume before, the um, ruling on uh, the, the Supreme Court ruling on the um, drawdown uh, or the dismantling of the DACA program and the argument that executive governance goes beyond constitutional power is certainly one that is tested by this notion of where what is the, the branch that's going to check it because Congress in some ways uh, goes leaves the field and that leaves the judiciary and certainly we've seen during the presidency of trump you have these so-called nationwide uh injunctions that district federal district courts are issuing and that seems to be the um, site of resistance in some ways uh to the exercise of uh, trump's constitutional powers so how do you see in other words recent presidential history as uh, effectuating limits on executive power vis-a-vis um, -vis the courts? It's, it's a really interesting uh, question you're asking. Uh, you're right. I, I wrote the book before uh, the Supreme Court decided the DACA-DAPA case over the summer, and I was very critical of those programs. I thought they violated the president's obligation 
to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, as Article 2 says, and that President Obama didn't have the right to say, I disagree with the policy Congress set and the immigration law, so I'm just not going to enforce them as to, you know, estimates range from six to eight million cases of aliens who are not legally in the country. So it's interesting. It's, this actually shows a, an example of what I was talking about. So President Trump, you know, comes into office. He declares, you know, he. I think he uses uh, executive power in this way I've been talking about before. So he claims the right of prosecutorial discretion, which is the same right that Obama claimed he had to institute the DACA DAPA programs, which is, I can't prosecute every violation of federal law in the country every time with every person. So I'm going to manage limited resources and, you know, allocate prosecution resources to where the cases are most important. So Trump comes in the office and says, I disagree with Obama. I'm restoring the way we enforce the immigration laws to the way they were before. It seems to me one of the actual checks on executive power is executive power itself, the right to undo what the last president did, you know, issue an executive order to undo the last executive order, terminate a treaty to that was uh, the last president made. The thing that surprises me is that uh, the courts, here's it gets to your second half of your question, uh, the courts have stepped in and have uh, tried to limit Trump's use of executive power, I think, in very traditional ways. So here they said President Trump couldn't end DACA and DAPA using the same method that President Obama had used to create them. Instead, he has to go through this process called the Administrative Procedure Act, which is a quite detailed and lengthy process, usually just used for regulations. It's never been applied to the decision what cases to prosecute or not. Uh, so I'm one, I thought that was remarkable. In fact, I can't think of another example where presidents are not allowed to undo what their predecessors had done. And then second, actually the a weird thing is that it might give President Trump a lot more unintended power than the courts might have thought when they were trying to restrict him, which is, well, what if President Trump now says, as he has, I'm not going to collect Social Security taxes anymore? Because <laughs> I think in a pandemic with the economy suffering Great Depression-like losses, uh, you know, the IRS should spend its time doing something else other than making people pay 6% of their income. They should have that money and spend it in the economy. Uh, I, I, so I think this is a good example. The courts have been more and more hostile to President Trump. But some of the unintended consequences of what they're, uh, I think, of their misreading of the law has been, ironically, to give the president, I think, even more power. So you began this book uh describing your personal dislike for some of the style and the policy proposals of Trump. Uh, you say that you did not vote for him in the uh, primaries and you did not vote for him in the general election. But you end the book noting that even though he's not personally still appealing to you, uh, there's this implicit uh, admiration for the way he's conducted his presidency. And so you don't have to answer this, but I'm curious, are you going to actually vote for him this year? Uh, I haven't decided, but it's mostly because I'm in California and nothing I do matters. Well, I'm in New Jersey. <laughs> and so the, the outcome is for, foregone here as well. Yeah, so, so I, yeah. I, probably, I probably would vote for him just so that I can get the percentage of his support up in the Berkeley count from 5% to 6%. <laughs> 
Well, the, the book is Defender in Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. And we've been joined today by its author, John Yu. John, thanks so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it.